Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Great to be with you, Ashley. Good to have you here. Yeah, it's um, it's good to be here. I am coming up on a two years of marriage this week. Yeah, so, that was yep. that's very exciting. Yep. So shout out to my wife Amanda. <laughs> two years per- of marriage, mostly during a pandemic. Yeah, that's wild. It's funny to I. In some ways, we've said that like those years should count at least double. Yeah. Um. <laughs> But we, you know, really one of the graces of the pandemic is being able to spend so much time with my my each other as newlyweds. So that's good. So we celebrated that this week. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, yeah, enjoying this uncharacteristically warm fall. I I know you were saying you're ready for sweater weather, but the longer I can wear Birkenstocks and t-shirts, the happier I am. Yeah, it's I. If there could be fall. You you can't have fall all the time because part of fall's magic is that is everything is dying and there's some, some like <laughs> yeah that's nice exactly what light. I love about fall. that's my Catholic take on fall is that there's like this uh, you know liturgical imagination around the season but you can't you don't get that if it's still eighty degrees New York we've got a jam packed episode this week we sure do we are talking to our friend Mark Oppenheimer he is the host of the Unorthodox podcast which. Longtime listeners of the show will know there are there are older siblings in the podcasting world. Yes, we copied most of their most of their things, but we've had uh, Stephanie and Liel from Unorthodox on the show a couple of times. But Mark has eluded us until now. Yep, <laughs> and he is talking to us about his new book. It's called Squirrel Hill: The Tree of Life, Synagogue Shooting, and the Soul of a Neighborhood. So, unfortunately, in America, we you know there seems to be a new mass shooting every month sometimes. So, you know, the eyes of the country go to that city or that school for a day, a week, and then we move on with our lives. And Mark Mark stayed behind in the in the months after this tragedy in which it was it was the worst attack on Jewish people in American history. And so he stayed with the people who survived and and how the community kind of rebuilt or not rebuilt, but just, you know, supported each other in the aftermath. Yeah, it's a great conversation. So stick around for that. But first, we've got Signs of the Times. But first, we have our drink. Oh, you're right. <laughs> There's so much to talk about with this drink. Um, I have I have a, a letter. So we're drinking Bloody Marys this week, but not just any Bloody Mary. Listener and friend of the show, um, Kevin Accord, sent us a letter and a package at some point during the pandemic. But we were not in the office to receive it. <laughs> no, so I'm not sure when it came, but we were very happy to discover it upon you know, coming back to the office to record some some of this podcast, he sent along a Cajun Bloody Mary recipe. And so really steeped in South Louisiana. I will just say shout out to all of the South Louisianans out there because you all do 
Bloody Marys way, way more intensely than we do. Yeah, Zach's not going to read all the ingredients because it would take up too much of <laughs> the rest of the show. We've got like uh, Zing Zangs is the, the base, um, but white pepper, celery salt, hot sauce, pickle juice, crab boil, horseradish. I mean, all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah, and it packs is... it packs, packs a punch. It, yes. It's spicy and delicious, which I love in a Bloody Mary. Yeah, so cheers. Cheers. All right, and now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? Over the weekend, U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi was in Rome and had a visit with none other than Pope Francis. Yes, she was She was in Rome for a, a climate summit where Pope Francis was also speaking, but the morning uh, before that, she had a private audience in the Apostolic Palace with Pope Francis and put out a statement afterwards saying, uh, you know, when they were together, they talked about their their shared support for fighting climate change, um, welcoming migrants and refugees and serving the poor. So she she thanked Pope Francis for his his the urgency with which he looks at the climate issue. So this is the third high ranking U.S. official under this administration to visit Pope Francis this year. Uh John Kerry and um, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken also were there. John Kerry, like Pelosi, is Catholic. And then our Catholic president, Joe Biden, is going to be visiting the Vatican later this month. Yes. And we should say that Pope Francis meets with a lot of presidents, public officials, political appointees, you know, all the time from lots of countries. And it does not necessarily imply some sort of endorsement. It's just he is he's not only the head of the church, he's a head of state. And this is what head of states do. Yes. Nevertheless, it is hap- it did happen at a time where that is I don't know to observers of the U.S. Church and U.S. politics is is a little curious I would say yes so this comes at a time when Nancy Pelosi is having a bit of a more contentious relationship with the Archbishop of San Francisco that's right Archbishop Cordelioni is calling on uh, Catholics and all people of goodwill to pray and fast for the conversion of uh, Speaker Pelosi's heart and conscience. Um, And this is in reference to her support for some abortion legislation. Right. So the House of Representatives recently voted to codify Roe v. Wade into law. So if that law was or that Supreme Court decision was overturned, the status quo around abortion rights would remain the same. So the Archbishop of San Francisco, um, as you know, the pastor in her diocese, you know, is really concerned about this because we consider abortion to be a act of grave moral evil. And uh, Nancy Pelosi has made clear her support for abortion rights. Yeah. So what you have is this situation where Nancy Pelosi's own bishop is they're sort of trading comments in in the media very publicly. And this is happening at a time when we're gearing up for the uh, annual fall meeting of the U.S. bishops, where at that meeting, they're going to be talking about a document that is centered on the Eucharist in the life of the church. And of course, you, you you can't really talk about that in today's climate without touching on this question of should pro-choice politicians present themselves for communion, because that seems to be all we're ever talking about when either of these topics comes up. Right. So and Archbishop Cordelioni has made his position on this clear in terms of the document on on communion and pro-choice politicians. He's he has said flat out, you cannot be a good Catholic and support abortion rights and that if you do, you should not present yourself to receive communion. But we also talked about a couple of weeks ago how Pope Francis kind of weighed into this debate saying that he has never de- denied anyone communion and that his 
you know, advice for bishops dealing with this issue is to act as pastors, not as politicians. Yes, I've expressed sort of my frustration at still t- having to talk about this issue. But guess what, listeners? It's going to continue to come up in the news because as we mentioned, yeah, this meeting's coming up. There's going to be more meetings with more politicians meeting with Pope Francis on the schedule. So stay tuned because we will be breaking it down every time it happens. What's our next story, Ashley? So we have some saint news. This week, Pope Francis cleared the way for the beatification of Pope John Paul I. He's not not someone you hear too much about compared to his successor, Pope John Paul II. He was only pope for 33 days before he uh, died of a heart attack. But he is now on his way to canonization. Right. And this brings up an interesting question because we're now at the point where John Paul I, again, only pope for 33 days, who's going to be the fifth pope in the 20th century to be canonized alongside Pius X, John XXIII, Paul VI, and John Paul II. Prior to Pius X, the last pope to be canonized was Pius V, who died in 1572. Yeah. And more, more stats, only four popes who range between the year 1000 and 1900 have been canonized. So only four in 900 years. And John Paul I is going to be the fifth pope in just this century alone. So did we just luck out in terms of the popes that we've had in in the modern times? Or is something else going on here? Well, there is some other context, which is that there's been an increase of canonizations generally, not just with popes. So John Paul II, during his pontificate, kind of went into canonizing hyperdrive. A trend that's also kept up under Benedict and Francis. But between the year 1234 and 1974, there were about 300 saints designated and canonized. And John Paul II alone did 482 during his pontificate. Wow. So that's so that's part of the context that's happening. But the question that you're asking is a good one because it, it could be the case that we are just in the golden era of holy popes. Well, that, I mean, one, you know, you could make the case for that in that, you know, in some ways... You know, in the Middle Ages, the papacy was very much tied to, you know, temporal power and the dirty work of politics and war. (laughs) On the other hand, you could say that the church in the 20th, I don't think anyone looks at the Vatican or the church in the 20th century and thinks totally clean record on controversial issues and not just controversial, but sinful things. Right. Right. But I don't know. This is. This feels just awkward to talk about, I think, because in a certain sense, we don't just think that these are designations, right? As Catholics, we profess that these are, you know, it means that these people are in heaven are and they're praying for us. And we're sort of recognizing that. On the other hand, you know, the, the process of of naming them, we we have to just acknowledge some of the human realities at play here. Right. So it is not a purely political process, but, you know, it takes it takes resources, it takes money to get someone to through the canonization process. Uh, it takes time. And, you know, Pope's seem to have a leg up <laughs> that your that your average Christian living a holy life somewhere else in the world isn't going to have. So right. there's an issue of fairness there. Yeah. And also, you know, I think there's some real wisdom to be had. I'm going to borrow, borrow it from the uh, New York City Hall, um, where if you go to a mar- get a marriage license uh, at City Hall in New York, there's, you got a 24-hour waiting period before you can come back and actually get married, a cool-down period, so to speak. And to extend that into church governance, I think our cool-down period for for popes should be much longer. Yeah, it's five years right now, or it's five years for anyone, five years after their death before you can... Yeah, but in the past, you know, previous popes wouldn't touch 
you know, a, a predecessor's cause for canonization because, you know, things can come up, you know, uh, also there's no rush. It also puts the current pope in a kind of awkward situation where if it's become the norm that, you know, you canonize your predecessors and you decide not to, it could be seen as a, you know, more political statement about what you think of their papacy. Right. Which is a real problem because the whole office of the Pope is supposed to be one of unity and sort of not trying to divide into team Pope Benedict's and team Pope Francis's, you know. And Pope Francis, and when he canonized Pope John Paul II and John the Twenty Third, it was seen as as kind of trying to trying to keep the whole church together, you know, and not and not lifting one of those men above the other. Right. So I don't know what's next. It feels like the cat's out of the bag a little bit. Unless, you know, we've seen some radical decisions by recent popes, right? Like no one could imagine a pope resigning until Benedict did it. It's unclear to me if either of the, you know, if Pope Francis is aware of this dynamic, um, if his successor will be aware of this dynamic. But I, I think we're I think we're probably in agreement that maybe this is the golden era of popes. But let's just wait at least 100 years before we start looking into their causes for canonization. Joining us in studio is Mark Oppenheimer. Mark is the host of the Unorthodox podcast and the author of the new book, Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting and the Soul of a Neighborhood. Welcome to Jesuitical, Mark. It is great to be a guest. It is. I do so much podcast hosting. <laughs> I just let the pressure is off. Yeah, you just got to talk. Yeah, you don't have I'm to. I'm just sitting here drinking the Bloody Mary you guys made me <laughs> at 10.57 in the morning. On a Tuesday. On a Tuesday. And just going to talk about myself and my book and whatever else you want to ask me about. I can't tell you how liberating it is to just be in the guest chair. Well, we should say, uh, we, we told you this off mic, but thank you for all the support you've given this show uh, since, our, since our founding, uh, primarily from copying your entire format on Unorthodox to you, you've been generous in having Ashley on and sharing it and supporting it. So really appreciate it. We did it. not copyright the format of insanely <laughs> witty banter um, made by religious people, quasi-religious people. Uh, no, you guys are the Catholic little siblings we always wanted growing up. No, we're, we, we're so pleased that your podcast has has thriven. As it has. Yes. Throve? Throve. Thriven? It thrives. It thrives. It thrives. It thrives. Thrive. Yes. Yes. Thank you for having me. Of course. So we do We do want to talk about your new book, Squirrel Hill, which is, of course, a, you know, a, a hard topic. And one of the horrible things about America is that there are a lot of mass shootings, but each one is its own unique tragedy, its own specific uh, causes and, and effects. So can you can you walk us through the events of that day? Um, what, what happened on October 27, 2018? Sure. Uh, that was the day of the worst anti-Semitic slaughter in American history. As your listeners will know, there was a shooting that morning at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood which is the oldest, it's safe to say, I think, that it's the oldest continuously substantially Jewish neighborhood in America. It's been, it's had, it's been about a third Jewish since around the time of World War I, so 100 years now. Um, other Jewish neighborhoods have come or gone since. So there's a kind of cruel irony to the fact that this 
slaughter was perpetrated on this little Jewish Eden, this little this little happy homeland in the midst of a great and tolerant city, Pittsburgh. There were three congregations in the building. That's a, something a lot of people don't often get is that Tree of Life Synagogue, in addition to having its own Tree of Life congregation, rented space to two other congregations, Dor Hadash, which is part of the Reconstructionist wing of American Judaism, and uh, New Light, which is uh, like Tree of Life, a conservative congregation. So there were people from three congregations killed. There were 22 people in the building that morning. 11 of them got out alive though uh, two of those 11 were shot and wounded, and then 11 were killed. It was an incredibly um, painful day for American Jews. I was about to say it was an incredibly painful day for Americans, but the truth is that most of us forget most mass shootings that don't personally touch us. And I think that um, one of the humbling things for me in writing this book about the Tree of Life attack, and it's a book for which I visited uh, Squirrel Hill 32 times over 18 months and interviewed about 250 people. One of the kind of humbling things or or kind of poignant and sad things is how many people have said to me over the last three years, because as, as we said, uh, this October 27th will be the third anniversary, how many people have said to me, oh, you're writing a book on Pittsburgh? What, what, what about? What happened there? And even after I say, oh, the shooting, there's still this beat where most people don't realize there was a shooting there. Is that is that non-Jews primarily? Primarily, but not only. But I would say primarily. I mean, this was obviously it was it was sad for everyone, but most people move on from most tragedies pretty fast. And that includes uh, a lot of Jews, especially secular Jews or Jews who are not synagogue goers or don't feel particularly attached to the Jewish community. It includes almost every Gentile I know um, that people don't know what happened there. I do think that part of what's going on there is that uh, Jewish life doesn't count for quite as much as other lives in the current political discourse. Most Americans are not particularly concerned with the ongoing institutional safety of elderly synagogue attending Jews on a Saturday in Pittsburgh. That's It didn't strike them as catastrophic in the way that it struck me. So how did, how did the Jewish community in Pittsburgh specifically and the United States more broadly, how did this affect their self-conception of their place in the United States? Obviously, look, especially in the short term, nearly all American Jews and many Americans besides were horrified and saddened and um, and felt compassion. And a lot of people sent a lot of money. A lot of people talked about it. A lot of clergy of all faiths gave sermons on it. There was a great outpouring of support from non-Jewish religious communities, Catholics, Muslims, evangelicals, and so forth. Uh, So there was a tension. It just just faded faster than you might have thought at the time. In terms of how it affected our self-conception, the number one thing I can tell you as somebody who sits on the board of my own small synagogue in New Haven, Connecticut, is all of a sudden we spent a lot of time talking about security, which is not something we had spent much time talking about before. My synagogue now has a guard every Saturday. Um, and we have greeters who we have locked doors and greeters who open the doors for people, which is actually kind of nice because it means there are greeters there. We didn't always have greeters, but you know, it was, uh, greeting is a whole like the way that evangelicals are good at greeting when you walk in. Oh yeah, Catholics yeah. are just and as Catholics bad. and Jews are just like you know you walk into. <laughs> a big old cathedral on a Sunday morning and there's nobody to greet you and there's just like seven people way up front and the first 50 rows that you have to walk through there's nobody in and it's just like do I go up front and join those people do I sit in row 37 with that crazy looking old lady do I like you don't know what to do and synagogues have a bit of that you know evangelical mega churches 
you walk in, you get, you know, they take your name, they give you a sticker, they give you a back rub, they give you a hug, they give you a drink. You signed up for their email. You're signed up for their email. Like before you even get into the service, they've, you know, they've entered their your phone number on their, <laughs> you know, their Apple phones, their iPhones. So, but now we have greeters because we lock the doors. So someone has to look at you and see that they know you and open the door for you. And it's it's had budgetary impacts. I mean, we now have to think about security systems. And I think it's in general made us feel like the time when synagogues could be just have open doors the way good civic institutions in America do. Libraries, one hopes churches, you know, public parks, that those days feel over. Was there like when it happened, was the sense of like shock like we didn't think this could happen here or you know people say different things about that that's a really good question um there was a pittsburgh rabbi who was interviewed after all of this who said i always thought this might happen here i always was aware on shabbat when i was leading services you know i mean people who turn their phones off on services you you then learned that some of them kept their phones on underneath the you know whatever lectern or podium they had just in case i certainly felt it wasn't going to ever happen here but I also feel like it's not going to happen again. Of course, I might be wrong. And I don't – that's not a well-reasoned belief. I'm just saying that whether it's changed people's sense of safety when they go to worship is very specific to who those people are. People who were security-minded before or anxious about their safety before are now much more so. Now, I, I was listening to um, you guys' podcast the year after the shooting. Yeah. And the, there were, you guys were talking about the sense of you know being woken up to – anti-Semitic rise yeah. in this country. And that was sort of just like a touch point. Can yeah. you talk a little more about that? There are two groups that keep statistics about hate crimes. One is the FBI and the other is the Anti-Defamation League. There may be other groups that do that. But typically, if you see news reports on rising crimes against Jews, Sikhs, Muslims, queer people, whatever, they're generally referencing either FBI stats or Anti-Defamation League stats. If you look at those statistics, we've seen a pretty sharp rise in anti-Semitic uh, hate crimes or hate incidents in the past several years. It predates the Trump presidency. You can't tie it uh, neatly to uh, the Trump presidency. Um, certainly, I don't think Trump's anti or I don't think Trump's suborning or uh, you know coziness with with white nationalists helped. Uh, nor do I think it's it's there's an easy one to one relationship of saying he caused tree of life. Although I certainly understand people who make that argument. What counts for a hate crime can be anything from a Jew shot to death all the way to a swastika on a park bench that may have been put there by a teenager who doesn't know what a swastika is. So it's very hard to know what to make of the, quote, rise in hate crimes. What I do know is that there definitely have been more violent attacks on Jews, uh, still a small sample size, but in the past two or three years. I mean, the attacks on um, Jewish identified, Jewish looking people in Brooklyn, Hasidic Jews, men with black hats. That was going on, you know, daily to weekly for several months uh, a year or two ago. Almost, got almost no media attention. Uh, people didn't really care. I was about to ask, yeah. Like, nobody cared. You, you mentioned before that Jewish lives don't seem to matter quite as much. How is that reflected in the media coverage of this? Um, well, the f first thing is there's less of it. There's just less of it. I mean, if you look at the amount of articles that, say, the Times ran on really what was a kind of spate of anti-Jewish violent crimes, um, people being punched in the face, for example, <laughs> um, in heavily Jewish neighborhoods in Brooklyn, there were just far fewer articles than there would have been if it had been 
women getting punched in the face by thugs, you know, for being female or identifiably queer people, men holding hands with men, women holding hands with women or West Indian immigrants or, you know, any other group or dog owners or (laughs) vegetarians or I mean, and by the way, any spate of crimes against any people deserves our real scrutiny is is an extraordinary threat to the American fabric. And I would want there to be and there often is really substantial media coverage of these kinds of little, you know, rises and falls and blips and trends in crime. But given the level of it and the the frequency of it and the violence of it over several months there, you would think there would have been a national outrage. And this gets us a little far afield from like the tree of life question, but I think they're related. I mean, the tree of life, these were not Orthodox synagogues. These were not people who otherwise in their daily lives Lives looked Jewish. The men were not yarmulke wearers. The women were not wearing shadels, were not wearing wigs or or other kind of identifiably orthodox garb. But what it does say, I mean, the, the, the lesson you can take from all of it is Jews remain incredibly safe in America, but far less so when they refuse to pass as just white. And what did that, I mean, the, the past three years or so yeah. due to like the Jewish sense of American identity? You mentioned feeling less safe. Yeah. I don't think it shook our sense of American identity. I think, um, in fact, one of the things you hear a lot in Pittsburgh is this incredible sense of gratitude that the forces of the state came to our aid, right? I mean, throughout world history, usually the the czar's troops are against us. That was something really striking in your book. I had never thought of that. Like Jews aren't, you know, they're not shocked when people are attacking Jews. What really scares them is when the government isn't protecting Jews. And so the fact that You know, you had law enforcement officers running to the scene. Yeah. The use of state power in most of the history of Jewish encounters with Gentiles is that state power imperils our lives. State power is used to round us up and make us left safe and keep us in ghettos. And so the fact that in Pittsburgh and in America generally, and this was a reminder of that, in Pittsburgh was a reminder of that, that state power is on our side, is there to keep us safer, is enormously gratifying and reassuring. And there doesn't seem to be any evidence that 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 is weakening. I mean, one hears about white nationalist strains in the military and police forces, and that can be pretty worrisome. But by and large, the experience of state power in America is that it works to keep Jews safer. And that is really, really, really gratifying. Going back to the media coverage a little bit, um, you really started your reporting after the news cameras left. um, And you stayed much longer than most reporters would. Why is that? And what's that journalism look like? My father's from Squirrel Hill. And so is his father and his grandfather. So my dad was a fifth generation. Wait, hold on. Isaac, Moses, Oscar, James, Tim. Yeah. And so it felt personal in that sense. When I decided to do this book, part of it was a personal sense of wanting to know how the neighborhood was doing after the terror had left. I write in the book that, you know, uh, I actually say this about a presidential visit, about Trump's visit, but I think it holds for terror, that it's a little bit like a storm, a sort of flash electrical storm. These things come to town and they, you know, cause some chaos. And then within minutes, it feels like they're gone and there's some tumbleweed rolling and maybe you see like a burned out sign or something and the power went out. And But basically, then it's a ghost town and you can't believe the amount of attention that was there just minutes ago. And so I was very curious, what does it feel like? When the when the eyes of the world have left and people are still have to go about their lives, what does it mean to live in a community that so recently experienced um, mass terror and to have to, you know, go make the donuts in the morning? Yeah, I think we're all unfortunately accustomed to the 
post-shooting stories, less so now about the per- perpetrators, but more about the victims and their lives. Um, but you focused more on on the surrounding community. Yeah. Um, why did you decide to do that? I was not interested in the person who is, you know, allegedly and I think quite probably the shooter, Robert Bowers. I wasn't interested in going into Gab and whatever other websites he'd been getting his hatred from. That that did not strike me as an appealing thing to do with my finite hours on earth, though I have the highest regard for reporters who do. And the victims, you know, what's interesting is I think I made a pretty shrewd decision in not trying to investigate the lives of the victims. For one thing, a lot of their surviving family members don't want to talk for understandable reasons. For another, people beautifully remember the good things about people who have been murdered. And it's pretty hard to get at the complexity of them, at least right afterwards. And just the story I was drawn to tell was the story of the neighborhood, because I'm very interested in neighborhood and urbanism and how lives intersect in a small geographic area like Squirtle Hill. And I also knew that this was a community where everyone knew everyone. And so like, what does it mean to be two or three degrees of separation from somebody who's murdered? What does it mean that every time you walk into the Giant Eagle supermarket on Murray Avenue, half the people in there would have recognized a murder victim? We're not necessarily related to a murder victim themselves. We're not necessarily inside the building, but you could be pretty darn sure half the people in there would have recognized one of those victims walking down the street. That's an extraordinary thing to happen to a community. And that really interested me. So how do my question was, how do people react? How do they thrive? How, what, where do they find resilience? Were there any like structures in place that you saw um, that supported that? I mean, the stru- right. So one of the key structures was the, that the people who were murdered were all obviously synagogue goers. I mean, they all had faith communities and the people who were most immediately impacted, a lot of them had faith communities as well. One of the things that's interesting is this is an enclave, not just for the Orthodox, but it has remained a Jewish enclave even for people who are not particularly observant. And those have largely begun to dissipate in America. Most Jews just want to go where they can get a nice lawn and a pool and like good acreage and low taxes, the same things all Americans want. The idea that they want to live near other Jews, even if they're not Sabbath observant and need to be able to walk to synagogue is kind of attenuating, but less so in Squirrel Hill. So there were all these structures. There also is a a kind of shadow to this, which is that um, one of the things that happens after a terror attack is a lot of money flows in, and some of it is spent on good structures and some of it is spent on empirically useful structures. But a lot of people try try to buttress the community with money and new institutions and new programs, some of which are great and some of which are probably bogus. One of the poignant parts of your book is you you mentioned that because the shooter chose the synagogue he did, there there were only 22 people there on that Saturday morning. And if it had been maybe a few decades ago, it would have been a, or if he had chose a different synagogue. So, so you know, it was already a community that was kind of um, not on life support, but like getting, yeah. getting yeah. there. And did, how, how did, did this lead to any revitalization or? Right. I mean, Tree of Life Synagogue, again, there were three congregations housed in the building, but the principal one and the one that lost more people, Tree of Life, was 20 or 30 years ago, was close to a thousand families strong, which made it quite large. Now, the the membership roles are somewhere between 200 and 250 families. And even of those families, attendance is quite low. To your question, Ashley, about whether there was some sort of revitalization, there wasn't. And one of the things I talk about in my book is the sermon, one of the sermons given at the High Holidays a year later. So the shooting happened October 27th. In 2018, that was after Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. 
So the next high holidays were about 11 months later. And that's when the rabbi next got to address a really large crowd in his it actually was not held there because it was still a crime scene. It was held at a church, but you know, with his congregation for a religious purpose. And he used that occasion, this is Rabbi Jeffrey Myers, to say to them, look, like seven of our fellow worshipers were murdered. And um there have not been seven people who have stepped up to these were seven people who came regularly, and we have not had seven new people step up to come regularly. You know, what he might have added was membership roles had stayed steady but had not seen a big groundswell, and attendance of that steady membership had dipped a little bit because seven of the, say, two dozen most loyal attendees were dead. And it it does speak to a certain thinness of the social capital in this congregation as well as just kind of other things not coming into alignment that, you know, there weren't a bunch of new people who stepped into the void of these elderly dead Jews. A lot of people gave money, but um, you know, as one rabbi said to me, not for quotation, he said, "Like Tree of Life doesn't need any more money at this point. It does because they have a lot of repairs to make, but th- they have more money than they have bodies. And what they need are for people to like what they needed for people to literally step into the shoes of the people who were murdered and vote with their feet and start going." Do you do you think that actual attendance or some type of reengagement is important in the aftermath of something like this? I mean, I can't imagine what else is. If one is moved to do something specifically Jewish when 11 Jews have been murdered in one morning, and these were Jews who helped make the minion, who helped be there so that you had a quorum of 10 to pray, if I were nearby, certainly what I would want to do is say, like, what were these people doing that they aren't doing anymore that I could do? That's a scary thing if people are if, if the answer is, well, you could go to synagogue on Saturday and that's not one's practice, then that is either a non-starter or it's a scary thing. And I understand why that is not a choice that a lot of people made. Although across the world there were Jews who re-engaged with their own communities and we've had those stories on our podcast. Did did you engage in any new ways? I mean, obviously you took the time to go to Pittsburgh 32 times. I, like, I mean, I'm on my synagogue board. Like I give at yeah. the office. You know, I- yeah. You paid your dues. I go, I go a lot. Um, but look, while on the one hand, I don't think it's, the, it's productive or even right to try to guilt every Jew who didn't step forward bodily with their presence for not having done so, I also think that as a journalist and, a, and an observer, I have an obligation to say the true thing here, which is that what communal Judaism lacks- more than anything in a city like Pittsburgh or Worcester or Springfield or Tampa or anywhere is less money than it is presence. That's not to say that these communities don't lack money. Most nonprofit religious institutions, even in a community with a lot of wealth like the Jewish community, are struggling. That's just as as Catholic parishes are, right? It's not that there aren't Catholics with money, but that doesn't mean that individual parishes aren't almost universally struggling, right? But what these communities need is presence, is is someone to go to the rabbi and say, what can I do to help? Where where am I needed? And where you're needed might be to bake challah and it might be to visit the sick and it might be to repair a roof, but it's more likely the rabbi will say, here's what you can do for us than to say, well, what we need is your money. We need the checks, but it's actually easier. It's easier to find the people who give the checks than the people who will show up. And I think that that's that we have to look very hard at Pittsburgh in the aftermath of Squirrel Hill and say, why did millions of dollars flow in, but not necessarily several hundred more committed attendees? You know, this is a book with a lot of hope. It's not just a a sad book. Um, I'm wondering if if you could distill that into maybe an anecdote 
or two. Um, you know, what what's the lasting message that you want people to take away from 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 your testament to Pittsburgh and Squirrel Hill? Dude, testament is such a goyish word. <laughs> is it? Oh yeah. That's like if you're even the way evangelicals say fellowship. Oh yeah. Yeah, like yeah, testament. We would just Dude, we just never say test. That's awesome, though. I feel like I'm totally like this is so exotic. I was hanging with the Catholics. I don't even use that word. A lot. I, that is, I, I would even say that's more of like. I a know. I was kind of taking. Are you gonna ask me to witness? Are you gonna ask me to buy a witness? I um, asked about your vocation as a. <laughs> my vocation, my witness. I mean, look, there were just like there's just a lot of beautiful people who want to do for other people. I mean, I really do. I'm I'm such an optimist about human nature. I just think just like. I think there's so much kindness and love in the world. And I think that life is so, so precious and that it's like, it's extraordinary, you know, the line from from Nabokov where the, the cradle rocks above an abyss, right? That we get this little time where we like get to be alive and then then it's over. And I think in the, in, in the, in the first chapter, when I talk about the crosses for losses guy, oh my God, I'm forgetting his name now. And he's in my book. What's his name? Uh, Zanis? Yes, Greg Zanus, thank you, who traveled the country for 20 years, putting white crosses in the ground wherever people had died violently. Driving like thousands of miles for like 48 hours at a time. Like just, just, and then like build, and then building crosses in the back of his, in the in the bed of his truck and his hands would be caked with white. And then, and he was a Christian, he was an evangelical, but he would, for Jews, he would put a Star of David, he would cover the cross piece with a Star of David so that you didn't see where they, you know, the cross aspect of it. And for Muslims, it would be a crescent moon. And he had another thing for Sikhs and another thing for Eastern Orthodox and another thing for atheists even. I mean, he did this, it was totally sort of ideological, transdenominational. And there's that amazing scene where, and he doesn't, where he he walks up to some Jews and says, would you put these in the lawn? Because I don't feel like it's it's because I feel it's sacred space and and you should put them in the lawn. And it was just this incredible coming together of Jewish spirituality, Christian spirituality, the the American urge to to do for each other, to help out in these times. You know, there another another moment like that in the book is when they're when the Jews are at one of the funeral homes performing tahara on the bodies, which is the ritual washing of the bodies, and they say psalms over them. And the, sorry. I guess I'm gonna have to toughen up if I'm gonna talk about this for like the rest of my life. And uh, they say psalms over the bodies, and then they sew them into the linen shroud to bury them. And a woman knocks at the back door of the funeral home, and these Jewish guys who are inside doing the tahara, doing the washing, are totally freaked out because, you know, there's just been a murder a couple of days ago of eleven Jews, and now there's they're in the funeral home washing the Jewish bodies, and some rando person knocks at the door in the middle of the night or late at night anyway, I forget exactly when it was. And so they're thinking, is this safe? Or is it someone tracking down Jews again? And they open the door kind of gingerly and look through and there's this woman there and she has a she has a wad of money. I think it was $1,000, I forget. I could look in my book and hands it to them and says, this is for the couple. And they think what she means is it's for the family of the couple that was shot. Bernice and Sylvan Simon were um, a, couple, a married couple, elderly couple who were both murdered. And she says, this is for the couple. And they say, who are you? Like, what's your name? And she says, I'm not going to tell you. And she just like walks away. And there's just all these people who want to do stuff. I, I never thought this would be a depressing book, and I don't think it is. I think it's an incredibly hopeful book. And it's one of those weird accidents of life that some crazy person with access to guns can wreak all of this terror. But he's just one dude. And in a country of what, over 300 million people, there actually aren't that many of those dudes. Like, actually, these evil people are way outnumbered by the good people. And I really hate the way that the evil people can, like, 
occlude the the beauty that's that's all around us. And there was a lot of that beauty in Squirrel Hill in the in the year afterwards. And it's documented very well in this book. So congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's a triumph. Thanks. And we will complete your uh, Catholic initiation <laughs> with with the last question that sure. we ask all of our guests. So, Mark, if you could bring it, canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be, and why? You know, I know I'm going to be asked this, and yet I hadn't thought of it because I'm, <laughs> I'm such a fan of your podcast. Could you actually I, this? I always want to ask you this: yeah. Does canonize? There's beatifying someone. Then there's canonizing like when it's that's it's full, full saint. fledged, full yeah. sainthood. What is it to beatify someone? It's just on the step. It's on the yeah. There, and you there get people to be who like, make it, right? Servant of God, venerable. We all make it. It's just that they're they're stuck Blessed in the Blessed yeah. Saint. Don't some people get stuck at beatified? Yeah, for like hundreds of years, but that's And then they get kicked upstairs. And it's before you've had your miracle, right? Yeah. Yeah. You have to be like You gotta get the miracle. You gotta get the miracle. Unless you're a martyr. There are loopholes. Do you guys both believe in miracles? Yeah. That was a- <laughs> It was such an easy one. I was like, I didn't think it'd be that easy. Well, like at the um, end of it, like a, the whole point is like a guy rose from the dead. So everything right, else is just kind right. of Right. If you potatoes. can believe that. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do a very personal here. I had a friend in elementary school whose name was Katie Risley, who I remember for being in a couple of years of my life when I didn't have a lot of friends and school was tough and, you know, Nothing atypical, right? Just we all go through this periods in school where we feel like left out and ignored. And she was always very kind to me. Fourth grade in particular. Like Katie Risley was very, very kind to me. Then I lost touch. I switched schools, lost touch with her and didn't know of her again until I think it was the week after I graduated from college. Oh, wow. And I was home in my parents' house doing that like post-college thing where you're like sleeping till noon and, you know, I think I was partying with old high school friends. We had all just graduated. Nobody had a job. We didn't know what we were going to do. We're all back home with our parents being slugs. And I came down in the morning. My dad was probably having lunch. I remembered his breakfast, but it was probably lunch. And he handed me the Springfield newspaper, the Springfield, what was then the Union News. And there was an article about um, local girl dies in boating accident. And she had been out boating and there'd been her boat had crashed into another boat and her neck had snapped and she had died. And um, and it was Katie Risley. And my dad said, Didn't you go to elementary school with her? And I just fell apart. Like I just if you'd said to me who's one person in your life who you should have gone back and thanked for being kind to you, it would have been her. And now I was never gonna be able to thank her. And that still gets me to this day. I still think about that. I wouldn't say all the time, but like not a not a year passes that I don't at some point think about it. And I went to her funeral, which was the next day or the day after. And, um, you know, nobody asked me to speak. I mean, I hadn't known her for years. People from her college spoke. She went to College of Worcester. People from her high school spoke um, and said nice things about her. And I just, and I went up to her dad afterwards, who didn't, I don't think, knew who I was. Maybe he remembered me from when we'd been friends some years earlier. I said, I'm Mark Oppenheimer. I said, I want you to know. And I just said, your daughter was the only one who was nice to me. And I couldn't explain it any better than that. I don't know if he thought what he thought I meant by that. And, you know, I have no idea if she led a saintly life in between ages nine and 21. I have like I I don't know what whom she became. Although years later, I was teaching at a summer program and I was teaching with a guy who'd gone to college with her. His name was Terry Gladys. And I said, you went to college at Worcester. Did you know Katie Risley? And he looked at me and he said, they didn't come better than her. 
was like, he was like, she was the nicest person. So I don't know. I hope that whatever, I hope whatever like you people can do for her. She was some sort of Christian. I don't know if she was Catholic, but if you could put in a good word. Definitely. Yeah, we'll put in a good word. St. Katie. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. The book is Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting and the Soul of a Neighborhood. And it is. And if you don't listen to the Unorthodox podcast already. Yes, we should plug that. Yeah. People who listen to the show, I think definitely do. So it's like the Jewish Jesuitical, basically. Definitely. Yeah. It's like we heard what you guys were doing. We said (laughs) what they have in numbers, we have in, I don't know. We said there should be a Jewish version of that. And so we did it. And we're trying our best. Yes, and thank you. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. Stay awake every night just to catch One more glimpse of your skin When I look at the way you sleep I know I'm home Now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives. And I'm on deck this week. You're up. Let's. No, no you're not on deck. You're you're up. Oh, right. <laughs> you're on deck. Yes. <laughs> Baseball, not my strong suit. What do you got for us? So you might remember that a couple weeks ago you told me about going to a family wedding where it was, it was quite a trek, 10 hours both ways, and you weren't sure if it was going to be going to be worth it. Um, but you had this realization of just like the power of being present to people in your lives. And Well, Amanda had the realization. <laughs> she, yeah, she she's always the one reminding me, you know, just show up, just show up. Yes. And and I felt a bit challenged by by that uh, realization because I had um, an upcoming event that I was not exactly looking forward to. So uh, that happened this this weekend. Um and so it was a it was not a it was not a funeral but it was a celebration of the life of of uh an uncle who passed away in early 2020 and because of covid we weren't able to really gather as a family to to celebrate his life and it was an uncle i wasn't particularly close with he was always you know he's someone i saw at christmas and a couple other times throughout the year but um i can't say we had you know the deepest of relationships or a lot to talk about and so I was, you know, <laughs> after your conversation, I was, you know, kind of had it in my, I was going into this event with the attitude of like, uh, what a gift I am <laughs> giving to my family by being present, by showing up, <laughs> which, you know, kind of defeats the- <laughs> Doesn't defeat the purpose, but it certainly adds a, adds a wrinkle. Yeah. Um, and I had my perspective just completely flipped on its head once I was there. Family and friends who who were very close to the, to my uncle Jeff uh, shared stories from his life that I just didn't know about, and revealed this this man who had you know really loving and fun relationships with people who you know weren't me, but were really important in his life and who, you know, he really made an impact on them. And so it was this just this experience of having myself completely decentered. Um and, you know, I it's we all know this, but it's hard to actually practice and keep it in the front of our mind that the world does not revolve around us and that not everyone is just an actor in or a character in the Ashley show. <laughs> I've certainly 
been guilty of thinking this exact same thing, right? And in some ways, we're we're like formed that way in American culture, where like we're taught to be like the, the person who's driving the story, right? We've got you know, you do the advanced classes, you go to the right college, you get the right job, you get the you do all of these things, and all these other things exist to support your goals. And then even the religious perspective is like. Yes, God does love you individually as a person, like in your uniqueness and wholeness, like radically and in totally focused on you. But to consider that he also has that relationship with everyone else, it it, it breaks a lot of models that I I feel like is it's just like a lesson you have to learn with age, maybe, or wisdom. And yeah, so one thing we were talking to Father Sundrep about this and, you know, it, we, you know, we recognize that it, these big events can help, you know, help us remember this reality. But it is also important to try to come up with habits in your daily life that help you remember this, whether it's just like a mantra or, you know, or just like writing someone's name down and being like, OK, I'm going to think about <laughs> what their life is like when I'm not in the picture. Right. <laughs> or, they're, they're a main character, not yeah. just. Uh... So I guess one question I would want to leave myself with and the listeners with is just like, Maybe like think of one person in your life who you've seen as 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 a sidekick or a um, maybe you haven't seen them in their full humanity and and what what their value and dignity is and what their struggles are when when you're not there and how how God sees them and just kind of like keep keep that person in your mind for a little bit. All right. All right. I will get us out of here. Judge Whittakel is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation, provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of America Media and is recorded in the William J. Loshert Studio in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.